Welcome to Real Life. We're so happy that you could join us this morning. Um, if you'll stand with us, um, we'll get the service started. My soul, I know, and his blood has covered my sin. I believe, I believe, my shame is taken away. Good, good news. 
So this weekend, our, uh, our youth kids, middle school and high school, are at the lake camping out, and uh, Amber texted me, called me yesterday afternoon, said, hey, I've been talking to some of the kids, uh, want to get baptized. So that was Corbin and, uh, and Chris and Lexi, uh, all going public with their faith, which was awesome. And uh, another awesome thing is uh, that was the first baptisms Amber's ever done, which is cool. And uh, the, just knowing the kind of work that she does with the kids and the time that she puts in with them um, really does minister to them. And uh, I know we're going to see a lot more of those uh, through the kids' ministry and um, middle school youth programs. So uh, anyway, this is, this is why we do what we do, why we give, is so that uh, lives can be changed we can see young people and old people surrender to Jesus and join the kingdom. And, uh, and so we want to invite you to give today. Uh, DJ's in the way. But if you uh, would like to give, you can go to reallifecc.us on your mobile device. Click on the uh, give link down on the bottom right-hand corner. Go through that giving flow. 
uh, create an account, sign in, whatever, and uh, make sure you give. If you're in person here, we've got a bucket in the back. You can give that way. Uh, however you give, know that lives are changed because of that. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us and for doing so much for us. And we just want to thank you for um, these three young people who've given their lives to you, surrendered to you, and, uh, and now part of your kingdom. We thank you for the, the, the ministry to our kids and to our youth that's going on here through Amber and her volunteers um, and, and just excited to see, continue to see lives changed through that ministry. And, and, and God, you know, because your people give, programs and ministries like this can continue and lives can be changed. And so thank you, God, for pouring into us so that we can pour into others and, uh, and, and we can just grow the kingdom. Uh, through you and as your spirit leads. So um, God bless us today as we continue to worship you. Thank you for the opportunity to partner with you in everything that you're doing here in this uh, planet and on this planet and in this place. God, we thank you for loving us so much and for giving us your son. In Jesus' name. We have come to our time of communion, so after I'm done talking and praying, there are stations all around the auditorium that you can go to and get communion during the next song. Humans are complex. We think differently, we act differently, we feel differently, and we can experience the same exact thing and tell two completely different stories about it. This is beautiful. Our uniqueness is one of my favorite things about God's creation. And though it's beautiful, it is really frustrating sometimes. Sometimes we feel really passionate about something and it hurts us when someone else thinks differently. We get really irritated and frustrated and I've heard that we feel irritated because we don't understand. So maybe someone did something to you and it really irritates you well, that might be because you don't understand why they would do that. In Luke 23, um, starting in verse 26, Luke talks about Christ's crucifixion. And in this, Jesus has been nailed to a cross. He's been cursed at, spit at, tortured, tormented, anything that you can think of. He is on the cross about to die. And instead of getting irritated at all these people who are unjustly killing him, he says, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Now this can be really frustrating to us because we don't understand why he would say that. But it's beautiful and we can take that and we can hold it dear and that is what we can strive for. So during communion, I challenge you to think of someone or something that irritates you, that you don't understand, and give that to God. Now that is a really big challenge, and I understand that, and that's okay if it's really hard. God is there. He saw those people at his worst when they crucified him. He has seen us at our worst, and we are allowed to take that to him and to surrender that part of our lives to him, and he will take that, and he will take the best care of it. So while you commune with God and with your family, think about what it would be like if you could ask God to forgive them. If you could ask for understanding. Maybe pray if something's holding you back. Just lean on him because he is there to support you and he can support you better than anyone else. So lean on him. Let's pray. God, you are our comforter and our creator. You're the king of everything. And we come to you maybe with broken hearts, maybe with frustrated souls. And it just hold us, show us your love, show us that you care. Help us understand that we're allowed to come to you when we feel broken and we're allowed to come to you when we're happy. And you want us in our full selves. You want all of us. You don't want a part of us. You want every single little thing that we come into contact with, that we feel a certain way about, you want to know from us. Help give us the strength and the courage to trust you enough to lean on you in such 
a difficult and frustrating time. It's in your name I pray, amen. darkness flew, the morning broke in light and dew, when day had come again anew, and all we sinners sang. In muck and mire, our wretched souls had fallen to the depths below, hell deserved, but there was hope, and all we sinners sang.
we are kicking off a brand new message series today called As It Is in Heaven. I want to start off with this word. What comes to your mind when you think of the word kingdom? What comes to mind? Maybe you uh, like old school stuff and you think about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Ooh, been watching a show on Netflix about that. Pretty cool. Maybe you think about uh, Braveheart. Maybe that's the kind of picture that is conjured up in your mind. Um, maybe if you're cool, you think about, and, and I'm not going to tell you what this is for. You're just going to have to, you know, you're just going to have to know whether you're cool or not. Maybe when you think of the word kingdom, you think about the kingdom under the mountain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or maybe if you're uh, more sophisticated, you think of uh, Downton. Mm-hmm. Okay, or, uh, or, or maybe you're just caught up culturally and you think about the term kingdom and you think of, uh, I don't know, Prince Harry and Meghan. You follow the royal family. Oh, so exciting. The idea of a kingdom can be difficult for us in kind of Western democracies because we're used to just voting people into power And then they're supposed to act in our best interests. However, regardless of your political persuasion, I would make the argument that most people in politics right now um, are really just a kingdom unto themselves or maybe their own political party. And so we have a hard time understanding what it means to live as part of a kingdom because we've never experienced it. So when Jesus talks, during his ministry, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, it can get really confusing for us. We're just not really sure what he means by the term kingdom. So for the next few weeks, we're going to examine what Jesus says about the kingdom of God and, and what living as a part of that kingdom means for you and I today, how we live our lives and how we go about the daily routines that we have. But I want to be real clear right up front and make sure like we all kind of understand where we're at at the beginning. Um, If you're a part of the kingdom, you serve the king. And whatever you thought was going on when you agreed to follow Jesus, at whatever point that was, in your life, and maybe you haven't even come to that point. Maybe you're like you're ready, and you're on the edge, and and you saw the videos of the kids getting baptized uh, earlier and going public with their faith, and you're like right there, ready to do that. Wherever you are in this process of becoming a part of the family of God, of becoming a follower of Jesus, this one thing is true: Jesus is the King of God's kingdom. And we have to align our will to his reign. So that's our bottom line today because I don't want you to forget it. If you're part of his kingdom, you serve his king. If you're a part of God's kingdom, if you've surrendered to him, then you serve his king. Scripture tells us over and over again that Jesus is God's king. That's the case for the young people who went public with their faith yesterday. They're part of the kingdom now. They serve God's king, Jesus, and they're now servants of him. You know, we're not the only ones who struggle with the idea or the concept of this spiritual kingdom that Jesus talks about. This kingdom was talked about from the very, very beginning and and prophesied about. And the religious leaders understood that the Messiah was going to come. They didn't know it was Jesus at the time, but they knew that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to usher in a new kind of kingdom. And so they had all kinds of ideas about what that kingdom was and what it looked like, what it meant to be a part of the kingdom of God. So the religious leaders whose job it was to help the rest of the people understand what it meant to be a follower of of God, to obey and to be a part of his kingdom, they had some pretty messed up ideas when it came to the kingdom of God, just like I think we do today. 
And so I think that's part of the reason that we see Jesus in his ministry confronting the religious leaders oftentimes about their misunderstandings, their inaccurate representations of what the kingdom of God actually was. And that's why Jesus began preaching and teaching by starting, uh, by sharing about the kingdom. And he shared just a little bit at first. He kind of made these like general statements about the kingdom without really explaining what he meant. And then as his ministry went on, he gave a little bit more information, a little bit more, and he just built those blocks to help people understand what it really was. As he went on, then he laid out truth by truth what the kingdom was until people had a fuller picture of what it actually was. And we see this played out in Matthew's biography of Jesus' ministry. And so let me just kind of go down a little bit through Matthew. In Matthew 4.17, Matthew says this, a blanket statement, that from time to time, Jesus began to preach. He would say this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay, so that's the first thing we hear about it. Matthew chapter 4, it's the first thing we hear. Jesus, uh, or Matthew says that Jesus just every once in a while says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. But he doesn't give any other explanation about that. Then in chapter 5, arguably Jesus' greatest single teaching, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, if you ever heard anybody talk about that. He um, talks about the kingdom a little more. He mentions it several times, but it's completely opposite of what everybody believed at that day. In fact, Jesus starts out by saying the kingdom of God belongs to the meek. Now, people that are like, what are you talking about? Let, let me just tell you, in case you don't know, kingdoms rise and fall with powerful people. The meek do not inherit kingdoms in this world. If you're meek, you get um, bowled over, right? You don't come to power and take over a kingdom if you're meek. And yet that's what Jesus said. The meek will inherit the kingdom. He went on to say, if you want to be greatest in the kingdom, you have to be the least. It's completely opposite of, of any other kingdom that had ever been discussed or talked about. And, and then he said, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God... You've got, to be, uh, you've got to have greater faith or greater understanding of the kingdom than the religious leaders. Nobody had better understanding or, or greater faith, at least they thought, than the religious leaders. So just over and over, Jesus is making these like blanket statements that are completely contrary to everything that anybody knew about what a kingdom was. In chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus told the people that they should seek first God's kingdom, and maybe you remember that verse, and, and if they did that, if they sought his kingdom first, then their basic needs would be taken care of. And, and I think there they kind of went, oh yeah, wait a minute, the king is supposed to provide for the kingdom so that we all get the things that we need. So they, I think they got that a little bit. The kingdom is mentioned once in chapter 7, once in chapter 8, again once in chapter 10. In chapter 11, the idea of the kingdom is mentioned twice, and then it's not mentioned again until Matthew chapter 13, where it's mentioned eight different times. And it's probably Jesus' biggest single teaching on this concept of, of the kingdom. In fact, if you go read chapter 13 of Matthew, what it says over and over again is the kingdom is like... A farmer who goes out to sow his seed. He says the kingdom is like a mustard seed that's planted in the ground and grows up and, and is an annoyance to some, but to others it provides food and shelter. The kingdom is like a pearl of great price that somebody finds and sells all that they have in order to obtain it. So we have this great body of teaching about the kingdom that Jesus just kind of downloads to everybody. But there's something that happens between chapter 11 where Jesus says that, that the kingdom has been ruled primarily by violent people and violent people are, are, are taking hold of it. And then chapter 13 where he starts saying the kingdom of heaven is like all of these different things. So I went to chapter 12 and I began to look to see what happened between Jesus asserting these two kind of crazy statements. 
And so in Matthew 12, there are three important moments that, that take place that led to Jesus uh, giving this huge information dump about the kingdom in chapter 13. And so I'm going to take them a little bit out of order because the last one is where I want to spend the most of our time today. So the first thing that happens in Matthew chapter 12 is that um, Jesus has escalating interactions with the religious leaders. Now, um, the religious leaders are often angry with Jesus, okay? But this time, they were angry with Jesus for healing a man who was crippled on the Sabbath. The religious leaders said, you know, God says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so the way that you keep it holy is by not doing any work on the Sabbath. And so they said Jesus was healing this guy, and that was work, and so that was a sin, and he shouldn't do it. Well, Jesus knew what they were talking about, and, and in Jesus' fashion, um, he understands what they're saying, and he calls the man up anyway and heals him right in front of him just uh, to spite the religious leaders a bit, just to help them understand that they don't rule him and they don't scare him. In the moment, though, Jesus kind of points out their hypocrisy. In fact, he says it um, this way, which one of you, if a sheep falls in a hole, would not pull him out of the hole on the Sabbath. Like we would understand that, that if there's an issue, if there's a problem, you deal with it, right? You, you fix it. You do what you can to rescue those that you care about or things that are close to you or your possessions. And so Jesus is saying, isn't, isn't this healing of this man with a crippled hand, isn't this more important than your livestock that might fall and, and, and get hurt? You don't want me to heal. And so he, he points out this hypocrisy, but there's these escalating interactions that, that happen. And Matthew says that this act of Jesus healing this crippled man was the straw that broke the camel's back. Except Jesus says it um, this way. He says, uh, Matthew 12, 14, I think. The Pharisees left, had this conversation with Jesus. He basically calls them hypocrites. And they started making plans to kill him. That's the first major moment that happens in chapter 12. Jesus sees God's plan of the cross beginning to unfold. Can you see how that looks? So Jesus said over and over, I do whatever I see the Father doing. In fact, Henry Blackaby wrote a book um, uh, about uh, discovering God. And, and in it, he says, as believers, we're supposed to look to see what God is doing in the lives of people around us, and then we join him. We don't say, God, this is what I'm going to do, and you bless it. We go, God, what are you blessing, and then let me be a part of it. And so Jesus basically says that. He says, whatever God is doing, that's what I want to do. And so he was constantly looking for God's activity in the lives of people around him. And he was interrupting his schedule, interrupting his day, interrupting his sleep to take care of those things that God kind of set in his lap. And so Jesus sees in this moment when the religious leaders begin to make plans to kill him, Jesus sees, oh, okay, God's plan is now beginning to unfold. The cross is now in view. And that's the first major moment that we come to um, in chapter 12. The second major moment is that Jesus identifies his followers as his true family. Now this comes at the end of chapter 12, but Jesus had gained some modest popularity among the people. And at this point, uh, because of his power to heal and the way that he taught, many people were beginning to follow him. And so he had kind of developed quite a crowd. In fact, if you go into the book of Acts later, um, you'll see that the people who followed Jesus were about 120 about 120 people who were like, we could call them just disciples. They actively followed Jesus. Wherever he went, he kind of had this group of 120 people. Now, of those 120 people, he chose 10% or 12 to be closest to him. And then he spent most time with them. But when sometimes when he talks about disciples, and especially when we get to Acts, you see that the 120 people were there. In fact, when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, it says that the tongues of fire of the Holy Spirit, representing the Holy Spirit fell on the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles, but there were 120 people in the room. So all of these people were here. So Jesus is in this town. He's kind of set up a town hall meeting. 
And while he's there speaking and teaching these disciples, 120 people or so, his family comes. So his mom, his brothers, his sister, they come to the house and they want to speak to him. Now, if you know about the the rest of the story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've read that and you understand what's going on. You know that his family has come to tell Jesus to shut up. Jesus, dude, you got to quit with this Messiah talk and doing all these, like we know this is what you think, but like this is a delusion of grandeur, right? And and so this is not you, you're just my son, you're just our brother. You got to quit this because you're bringing some political, some spiritual heat on us. And so would you please just be quiet, come home, Let's let's just avoid this nonsense. That's what's going on. And so his family comes. They want to talk to him. And, and, and Jesus says this at the end of, uh, of the chapter, Matthew 12, uh, 49 and 50. He pointed to his disciples and he said, These are my mother and brothers. Anyone who obeys my father in heaven is my brother or sister or mother. Now, if you're Jesus' family at that point, <laughs> that's got to sting a little, right? Wait a minute, you're not going to come out and talk to us? Like they would say they were being reasonable, right? They were like, we just want to have a conversation with you, Jesus. You just got to quit this. And he says, no, I'm not coming out because the people I'm with right now, they're my real family. That's got to hurt a little bit. His family, though, was not obeying his father. The next time that somebody tries to stop Jesus from doing what he's supposed to do, Jesus calls them Satan. He's having a conversation with Peter, remember? And he he says, "Um, look, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die for the sins of the world. And and Peter says, stop talking about that, Jesus. That's not going to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the things of God in mind, but the the things of, of Satan. Like, look, you're not functioning like you're part of my family. And so his biological family was not functioning under the rule and reign of his father. And and, and so he says, look, you're not my family. The people who listen to my father and do what he says, those are my family. And so this is the second major moment in chapter 12. If you're a part of the kingdom, you're part of the family. I think that's what Jesus was saying. Let's look at the third major point that comes in the middle of the chapter. Jesus confronts the religious establishment with their hypocrisy. Now, he's already had this moment where they try to stop him from from healing a man on the Sabbath who was crippled. Now, uh, sometime later, maybe the next week or something, there's another person that comes to be healed by Jesus, but this time they don't have a physical issue. They're possessed by a demon. And so Jesus is going to free this person, force the demon out of them, and the religious leaders are going to get mad. So this is a pivotal moment, in my opinion, uh, in the ministry of Jesus and what's going to happen next in chapter 13. And that's why we're going to stay here for the rest of our time this morning. So the religious leaders, we already know, are looking for an opportunity. They begin to plot to kill Jesus, right? So they're looking for an opportunity to to trick him, to trap him, to find a way that they can kind of maneuver things around so that they can um, get him to the cross. And so they employ kind of an ancient trick, I think used by Satan, that we actually see at work today in our lives. The quickest way to shift blame is to claim that your enemy is actually using your own evil tactics. So let me explain it, and then I think you'll probably see it, um, unfortunately and especially in our political climate right now. The religious leaders are plotting to murder an innocent man, right? That God says that's not okay right? God says, don't, don't do that. And in fact, that is the major reason for God's punishment of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, if you read Ezekiel, God goes back and forth through, through his prophet Ezekiel. He's telling his people, you're going to be disciplined and you're going to be sold into slavery to Babylon and I'm going to decimate your nation because you've shed innocent blood. 
You're unjust. You show favoritism. You're not upright. You're not honest in your dealings with other people and the way that you handle things. And so there's going to be punishment come on you because you shed innocent blood. So the religious leaders claim that the good Jesus is doing by freeing this man of this demon is actually being accomplished by the power of Satan. So they blame and accuse Jesus for doing exactly what they themselves were doing. They blame Jesus for using the power of Satan to cast out a demon. But the religious leaders, the people who were supposed to be following God and the people who set up all the laws to be able to follow God, they're the ones who are plotting to kill an innocent man. So it's this ancient trick, right? If you want to get the heat off of you, you just point to your opponent and say they're doing what you're doing. And then what do we do? We go, oh, look, like, it, like you know, it's politics. We look, look at the bouncy ball back and forth. Tennis, uh, the U.S. Open was this last week. And I watch it at the Y. Ugh. Anyway, uh, that's what we do, right? Just follow the bouncy ball. And we're just going to redirect you over here. We're going to point to this. We're going to go, look, see how evil they are. Look at what they're doing while I'm secretly over here doing the exact same thing. One side blames the other for doing what they themselves are doing. But Jesus, he stands up to them. This is what he says, uh, verse 28, Matthew 12. He says, when I force out demons, I do it by the power of God's spirit. So he points to this hypocrisy. He says, look, you're claiming that I am using the power of Satan to cast out demons, but that doesn't make sense because a house divided against itself cannot stand. Why would Satan do that? It makes no sense that Satan would cast out his own demons. But if you're saying that I use the power of Satan to cast out demons, by whose name do you cast out demons? I'm the, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one to come. If I've got it wrong, you certainly have it wrong. And so he points out their hypocrisy, and then he says, look, I'm not going to give in to you. I force out demons by the power of God's Spirit. So there's three major moments that lead us to this largest teaching about the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus escalating interactions with the religious leaders. Jesus identifies his followers as his true family. And then Jesus confronts the religious establishment with their hypocrisy. But I want to look again at verse 28 because Jesus says plainly that God's kingdom has already come. He says, look, if I force out demons by the power of God's spirit, it proves that God's kingdom has already come to you. Now that's important because of this point. We're not waiting for God's kingdom. We're working in it. We're not waiting for God's kingdom to come at some point. We're functioning and working in it right now. And we've got to understand that if we're going to actively and, and accurately follow Jesus in this world and in our lives. So Jesus says that his kingdom has already come, which means we're not waiting for it. We're not waiting for it to come at, at some point in the future. And we haven't missed it somewhere in the past. We're living and breathing in God's kingdom right now. So we're going to clear up some misconceptions this morning about Jesus' kingdom so that we're all on the same page for the next several weeks as we work through this message series. First, I want to look at what John says, or what Jesus says in John chapter 18, verse 36. We're right before Jesus' death. He's talking to Pilate, and, and Pilate is like, so you're a king, right? And so Jesus says this, my kingdom doesn't belong to this world. If it did... My followers would have fought to keep me from being handed over to our leaders. No, my kingdom doesn't belong to this world. So how can we be working in a kingdom that isn't of this world? Let me give you this um, explanation. Jesus goes on to, to say that if his kingdom were in the world then his servants would fight to prevent his arrest by Jewish leaders. But instead, he says, 
His kingdom has come from another place. So according to Jesus, we're working in a kingdom that just isn't from around here. And that seems odd at first. Like, well, I don't really get it. How can we be in the kingdom but not in the kingdom? And where is this kingdom and, and how does that work? So let me give you this um, this example, this metaphor for, I think, what Jesus is talking about. Um, if you're married, and at some point in your marriage, you have to travel. So um, you leave your spouse at home and you go somewhere. Maybe it's a few days, maybe it's a week, whatever. The point is that when you're away from your spouse, you're in a different place, you're in different surroundings, you're around different people, you have the opportunity to yourself be a different person. So, if you chose to, you could slip off your wedding, oh, I did that at the wrong finger, slip off your wedding ring, um, and you can pretend that you're not really married. That can get you into a whole lot of trouble. But if you're able to go away and spend time away, and while you're away, function in that new environment and around those new people as though you are still married, that means maintaining distance, not putting yourself in a situation where something might possibly happen. You've got to be careful. You've, you've planned it out. I'm not going to get myself in a situation where there might be the possibility to whatever. Then you are functioning in a new place as though you were in the old place. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, look, you're here right now, but you're functioning by the rules and the reign of the kingdom that you're from, not by the kingdom that you are in. So, he says, we are to live our lives according to the laws of the kingdom we're from, not the kingdom we're in. And there's a kingdom around us, right? I mean, uh, if there's ever a kingdom in the world, it probably isn't the UK, it's America. Like, we function like we are the best, we're the kingdom, we're the number one, and if you're an American, everything is great and wonderful and is super. And we do live in, you know, I have to say this, we do live in the best country in the world. I mean, we got our problems, right? But I'd rather have freedom and the ability to do the things we do than be someplace else and not have those freedoms and depend on other people for the things that we need. So I'm thankful to be here. But sometimes we get this idea that our kingdom is the greatest kingdom. And Jesus is saying, look, even though you live here, you're from there, and you got to live by the rules of my kingdom, not the kingdom that you're in. So Jesus is simply letting Pilate know that he is a king, that he has servants, but that he and his servants function by a different set of rules. So uh, let's go to this. When you are part of Jesus' kingdom, the world's principles don't apply to you. And I hope, okay, good. I forgot to have my wife go through and proof these, and I was really afraid I was going to say, like, principal, like a school principal, and that's not what we're talking about. Well, principles. So um, when you're part of Jesus' kingdom, the world's principles don't apply to you. That's why we can give financially and expect to have more. That's why we can stand up for the sanctity of life and marriage. That's, that's why in this world and in this physical kingdom, we don't let race or gender or, um, or country or creed stand in the way of our commission as followers to, to help every person possible find real life in Jesus. It's why we can serve and love and turn the other cheek. It's, it's why um, the, the, the last and the least in the kingdom, Jesus says, will be first in the kingdom. Because we don't live by the principles of this kingdom. We live by the principles of his kingdom. It's because the world's principles don't apply to kingdom people. To God's kingdom people. So when struggles come, we can see them as gifts. That's what we talked about in the last series. As painful as they are, they grow our faith instead of grounding our faith. That doesn't happen in the world's kingdom. That does happen in God's kingdom. 
When our enemies curse us, we can bless them, not because it's easy, but because it's expected of us by our king. When others are wrong, we don't have to point it out. Let me say that again. When others are wrong, even on social media, we don't have to point that out. And when we're right, we don't have to announce it because the king knows. We are working in the kingdom when we apply its rules to our everyday lives. So the kingdom can be working in our world and not be from our world. Now, servants in Jesus' kingdom, we can also make the mistake of thinking that Jesus' kingdom is not um, on this world. Throughout church history, the, the focus has shifted As we've gone along from Jesus, the the focus has shifted to our final destination. And so we ask questions like this of people who who, uh, aren't believers yet. We say, do you know where you'll go when you die? Or, Or we'll say, if you died today, why would God let you in to heaven? Now, countless people have begun their faith journey because of that question. But the problem with that question is that it focuses us too much on heaven, on this place that we're going to go someday, and we forget about what's going on here. We make um, church and religion and following Jesus about getting the heck out of here instead of what Jesus actually taught about the kingdom of God, that it was inaugurated here, and that it'll be consummated here. Do you get that understanding? Because this is big. I'm like, this has infiltrated the church for a long time. We spend all this this time talking about, look, if you just give your life to Christ, if you just pray this prayer, if you just whatever, then one day you'll get to go to heaven. But that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus said heaven's coming here, that it's all going to be made new, and he's going to bring heaven and earth into unity. They're going to be together, and when that happens, we will be able to see the spiritual realm that exists right now called heaven. It's not a foreign place somewhere out there, you know, beyond the Milky Way. I've I've heard people talk about, well, heaven is in a black hole. (laughs) No, it isn't. Because there's nothing in a black hole, which I don't even know if I believe that because nobody's been in a black hole. In fact, um, this is going to get really crazy. In fact, black holes are theoretical, which means we don't even know if they're real or not. There's just something we saw out in space and we don't know what to say about it, so it's a black hole and that's what goes on. All right, anyway, if you watch Star Trek, uh, you know that black holes are actually wormholes and they take you back and forth in time. That ain't real either. Okay. The point is that heaven is not this place that we're going to go when we die. And so we just kind of wait around here until that happens. Heaven began when Jesus came and started his ministry. And we don't see it all right now, but we will one day. So it's not this place that we're going, it's coming here. So listen to me carefully, because I think Satan has got a lot of people confused on this point. We will not be translated by, uh, uh, transported by an alien race or a meteor or a ship to the undying lands. When Jesus comes back, he's coming back here. We're not going there. What I mean is is that this world is not the waiting room for heaven. It's the operating room. This world is where um, sin and our lusts and our desires are cut away so that we look more like Jesus in our everyday lives until he returns and then he makes everything new. So, In our lives, and the things that we do in the church, in our daily lives, we neither bring about the kingdom of God in this world by our own works, our laws, our earthly power, right? That's what the the church believed in the Crusades. 
that the church could force the kingdom of God to come in this world physically. And, and so the church slaughtered people who didn't believe in Jesus. Do you know what we do when people are killed today because they, um, they don't claim allegiance to a particular faith? We scream and yell and we get all upset about that. But the church did it first. And that's tough. I I wish that didn't happen. In fact, I'm going to say that it was a complete misunderstanding of the word of God. And, And that I think God will actually stand in judgment of that because we cannot bring about the kingdom of God by doing things politically or socially or physically in our lives and in this world. We don't either simply let the world go to hell why we rate to be transported to heaven. So neither of those, we can't bring about the kingdom of God and we don't just sit around and wait for it to happen. The the kingdom of God can't be here and now if it's then and there. So these two foundational pillars of the kingdom of God exist. That if it is not of this world and that it is not off this world, These are the reasons that Jesus wasn't concerned about setting up a a powerful political kingdom with him on the throne in Jerusalem. It's why he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would have caused a revolt and they would fought against you to keep me from being arrested. But that's not what this is about. It's why he left his followers and, and went to the Father. It's why he left his followers with a great commission to go and make disciples now and to baptize them now to signify their allegiance to the king and, and, and mark them as, as part of his kingdom and then, and then teaching them to obey now. That's why he said, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. So, If Jesus' kingdom were of this world, he would have us fight to establish it. Right? If his kingdom were of this world, we would all have whatever uh, weapon you choose, and we would go out and we would fight to establish the kingdom of God on this world. But the kingdom is not of this world. Secondly, if the kingdom were off this world, we'd have to wait to experience it. And so we'd make this declaration of faith and then we'd just sit back on our hands and we'd go, well, heaven's coming someday and Jesus is coming for me and so I'm just going to wait for him to come back and he's going to make everything great and it's going to be beautiful. That's not the case either. The truth is, the third option, that Jesus' kingdom is in the world and he wants you to be a part of it. Jesus said that God's kingdom had already come to us. And so the question then is, what are you and I going to do about it? Are you going to ignore it because its rules don't make sense? God, I just don't understand. Are you going to wait for it, thinking that you've got time to commit before the end? Because maybe some of you are like, I got, I got plenty of time. You know, yeah, I'll come to faith eventually. Yeah, I'll believe eventually. But right now, I'm going to live by the rules of this kingdom, physical kingdom. Or your third option is to surrender to God's kingdom and to live your life by a new set of principles that maybe don't make sense to the people around you. The one thing you can't do is pledge allegiance to the king and then not live by his commands. There's a name for people who do this. Judas. Jesus' prayer was that God's kingdom would come and that God's will would be done right here like it is in heaven. So that's our challenge today and this week, to act like 
your king is on his throne. If you and I don't live like we're part of the kingdom, how will anyone else know that there is one? If it's not of this world, right, they're not going to see it if we're not surrendered to it. So, if you're part of the kingdom, there's a few things that are true for you. You serve his king. If you're part of God's kingdom, you serve his king. You also live by his commands. And you pledge allegiance to his crown. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us and, 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 and being with us and being for us. Thank you that we serve an almighty king who overrides the principles and the rules and the things that we see in this world. God, help us to live like that's actually true and to act like our king sits on the throne and, and that when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be given to you as well, that we function in our lives as though that is the truth. God, would your kingdom come? And would your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven?